When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Open City Podcast show about the past, present and future of London. It will feature new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. In this Open House special episode, we'll be talking about green spaces, London's greatest public treasures loved by everyone, and their future during a time of climate crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, we'll be focusing on Grosvenor Square in Mayfair, which is poised to undergo an ambitious renewal to unlock its full potential as an urban oasis, meeting the needs and expectations of our 21st century capital. Perhaps the new Grosvenor Square and the deep ongoing discussions around its transformation during this extraordinary moment of the pandemic may offer a new template for other public spaces in these challenging times. It is an iconic central London square, just moments from the world-famous destinations of Oxford Street and Hyde Park. But, despite its many charms, it is often absent from the mental map of Londoners and visitors alike. Originally, it was intended as a romantic and wild micropocket of the countryside in the city for local residents. But it is now, 300 years later, a more formal park featuring sombre memorials to the likes of Franklin D. Roosevelt. With the experience of lockdown seeing more and more of us discovering London's unique natural assets... This is an ideal moment to reflect on what these extraordinary urban spaces can offer and how they can be improved to help us build the inclusive, healthy and sustainable city we all strive for. I'm your podcast host, architectural journalist Merlin Fulcher, and we're joined by Deputy Editor Zoe Cave, Ed Green, who's leading the project on behalf of Grosvenor, the freeholder of the square, and Catherine Gregg, founder of Make Good, who are working with Grosvenor to facilitate inclusive debate around the square's new future. So public spaces in London are a lifeline, providing us with fresh air, refreshing green tones, watery reflections, moments of quiet and also exercise. They offer both solitude and sociability and everything in between. They providing space for sunbathers, swimmers, cyclers, joggers, picnickers, kite flyers, dog walkers and lots and lots more since those conventional public spaces such as leisure centres and theatres shut their doors as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Zoe, I think you've got some interesting facts about public spaces in London. I do, Merlin. So just to zoom in on it a bit, 38% of London is green space, followed by 24% of that being domestic gardens, 12% roads, etc., and 3% formal parks. So kind of having looked at those top line stats, you then start to think more about our relationship to London's urban spaces, which are deeply personal, 
but they are also rooted in a more collective held identity. In particular, we have this roll call of these epic landscapes, there's Hampstead Heath, Hyde Park, Richmond Park, and even the South Bank, which kind of evoke this really impressive reaction from visitors, from Londoners. Um, and they offer so many feelings and emotions, including sometimes frustration and conflict, because everyone arrives with their own unique expectations and demands. It seems now more than ever that we need more urban spaces of all scales, not just these large epic ones, and these take on a new forms and they're adapted to all constituents. So look, I think we should do a little bit of a game. Um, I think what we should do is start by sharing some of our own experiences of public spaces, uh, like what they meant when we were young, but also what they did during these strange COVID-19 times. But then also to think a bit about uh, Grosvenor Square itself and what it each means to us personally, because I'm sure a lot of people listening as well will have very strong opinions on all of these things. So like for myself, I grew up in London, I grew up in Clapham Junction, and I think when I was a kid, like it was definitely very much that the open spaces, things like Battersea Park and Clapham Common, it was all about burning off steam. So like me and my brother would be up there, whatever, running around on our bicycles on the adventure playground. Uh, and it was just about, you know, just sheer kind of like space for us as young people uh, just to just to express ourselves and have fun. I now live in Tooting. And uh, during the pandemic, obviously, because of the lockdown, spent a lot of time at home, working from home. So it, for me, it was all about like going out in the evening. And so the places like Tooting Common, uh, which, I, which I went to a lot and discovered all the little paths through the forest, a uh, place like Mitcham Common, which I've totally got a newfound appreciation for, uh, and the River Wandle, which is a kind of nature trail along an old river that was at one point very industrial and is now quite sort of romantic and natural. These became basically the, the highlights of my life, but I think I really enjoyed them more for their... Um, their kind of countryside in the city feel like it was the fact that I was seeing nature and that was a healing thing for me. I mean, Ed, do you, perhaps you could share uh, share a few insights into your your experiences of green space. Uh, sure. Um, thanks. Yeah. So I, well, I'm a country boy in the city, um, so I kind of grew up surrounded by open space, but obviously a lot of it's private and you know therefore not always that accessible. Um, so I'm a, I guess I'm a real lover of the. The network of footpaths that crisscross our countryside. Um, but since moving to the city, public space has always been about, you know, finding that bit of space somewhere where you can have a bit of sanctuary, a bit of an escape from the hustle and bustle. Uh, I have a little dog, so green space has always kind of, or has kind of taken on a new meaning since that joined my life. My local green space is Brockwell Park in Lambeth. Um, and yeah, I absolutely love it. It's kind of got something for everyone. Um, there's plenty of open space. There's views over the city. Um, it's got an amazing community garden and a beautiful wall garden, as well as like tennis courts, cricket nets, uh, and a BMX track. It's such a beautiful space, that one. Brockwell Park is stunning. Yeah, the council manage it and really well, and it's kind of a real centre point for the whole community. Zoe, perhaps you could jump in and, t and share your experiences of green space. Well, yeah, I was quite the feral, feral child running around like the deep East Anglia. Um, so I was probably quite similar to Ed with London green spaces. So I'm based in East London and actually was really, really lucky in lockdown because, well, first of all, I had this incredible community garden, which is shared with all of the um, all of the people in our in our flats. But equally, I've got an amazing sort of typical square straight over Sydney Square which is obviously really small right on my doorstep and then a little bit further down the road is Bethnal Green Square is Bethnal Green Park and then further on from that is Victoria Park so during lockdown when there's an imploding sense of anxiety and existential crisis 
you had the different parks I could go to depending on how brave I was feeling and how far from home I wanted to go. Catherine, perhaps you could um, share your, your experience. Obviously, we know that you've worked on this project. So think back to before you worked on the project. Okay, so I grew up in a small town called Kettering in the Midlands, um, but on the edge of that town, at the end of my road, I could cross the road and then I was in fields and it didn't actually occur to me that those fields were not entirely public access. So I feel like I'm going to borrow your word, Zoe, like feral, like there's components (laughs) of just being able to like run and build dens and like play. Dens were a big thing. Yeah, and like playing what I... I think is a, well, remember as a river is actually like a a tiny stream. But as a kid, I was like, it's really big and we've got a rope swing and we could swing across it. Um, So I had that, but also then that, you know, a town in which there were kind of formal parks. In lockdown, I'm based further east than Zoe over in Newham as I've got two kids. So the opposite to Merlin, I wasn't dragging them out late at night to uh, to walk. We were up really early in the morning and out at about seven in our local park, um, somewhere that we could walk or the kids could scooter and cycle to. My daughter actually went from being quite wobbly on her bike to being really good on her bike in lockdown. And so then our radius got much further Um, And then when we started to venture a bit further and my daughter got better and better on her bike, we started to go to the Olympic Park and to the edge of Epping Forest, so Wanstead Park. You know, I guess those are two very different types of spaces. So Wanstead Park, where you very much feel like you're in the countryside, but you're in the city. So you can at moments hear traffic, but you are completely kind of enveloped by woodlands at moments. Oh, absolutely, Catherine. And I think it's fascinating as well, the point you were making about young people getting better at cycling and walking. I've certainly observed that, that there's kids out there who like seem to be like excelling uh, as a result of this extraordinary situation in a way that if they'd been sat in the car in a normal year, yeah. they wouldn't have necessarily have, have developed that physical education in the same way. Yeah. But just so quick, so tell us a bit about your experience at Grosvenor Square before you got involved in this project. Okay, so my... Um, you know, I may have been through it and just not remembered it on other occasions. But actually, the time I really remember being in Grosvenor Square is before I had my daughter, my first child, and I inexplicably, heavily pregnant, decided to go to John Lewis to buy all our baby stuff. Had a bit of a meltdown. Husband like took me out of John Lewis, bought me a tuna mayonnaise sandwich, took me to Grosvenor Square, and life just felt a little bit more doable. But it was like that moment, I mean, I think, you know, it's those moments, aren't they, of just absolute kind of release of like, okay, I can breathe, I can see, I can see the sky, I'm not so surrounded by stuff and busyness and overwhelm. I think it's really fascinating as well, because all of us around the table really valued just like that feral freedom when we were young. But then now we're much more into the more formal elements of what's on offer. We'll probably come back to that later in the discussion. Zoe? We've managed to sort of just fill having much time talking about our experiences. And I'm sure if we were to have a call in for our audience, we'd have stories that there was a real overlap. We'd be able to see lots of similarities, but equally we'd probably be able to see lots of divergences and different people's interpretation of the same space. So considering that and considering how many in a city like London, how many different people you're not necessarily catering for, but you're trying to provide for, you're actually, you know, providing this this form of public service through these spaces. Ed, why are you renewing Grosvenor Square? And what's uh, where did you start with it? 
At Gravenote, we, we kind of measure everything through the commercial, environmental and social impact that it, that it can have. And as a long-term estate manager, we're kind of always looking for the ways we can invest to enhance these. So, you know, you can kind of imagine, you know, like reviewing the opportunities available to us. Um, you know, Grover Square just, just seemed like a, a golden opportunity. It's, um, it's in such an important location both from like an environmental and a human perspective. It's kind of sits at this bridging point between Hyde Park and all the other kind of West End green spaces. And the green corridors that run between those are kind of increasingly important. Our understanding of them is becoming more and more, and they're so important to, to supporting wildlife within the city. There's a thing called Wild West End, um, the Wild West End Partnership, which um, is kind of a, a partnership between those different landowners in the area who are kind of working really hard to, to improve this. And, um, you know, Grosvenor Square is, is like a really important node within that. Was there a moment when you realised this was a big opportunity and you you needed to get on a trajectory that was happening across London? Because London is certainly way better in its public spaces and landscapes than it was in the 1990s. Um, you know, was there other stuff going on in other bits like the Olympic Park or other places that made you think, wow, we've got a great opportunity on our hands? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, you look at some of the some of the green spaces that have been created across London and around the world, really more broadly, and you know what they're delivering, both in terms of their environmental value and their social value, is is way in excess of you know what it is that we think Grosvenor Square is currently delivering. I mean, to put that in context, you know, the biodiversity Grosvenor Square is about five acres, and it's it's pretty much grass, a holly hedge and and some mature trees which are amazing but they're nearly all london plane trees you know there's there's been a lot of reporting recently you know there's a crisis in biodiversity the world over and you know the solution lies not just elsewhere or in the countryside but but everywhere and we need to make the most of every square inch that exists and create habitats in every possible location i also think ed in terms of what you just you said previously about these these green corridors in london i think sometimes we forget in London, these like pockets of green that we have, how amazing it is when you compare it to something like New York, which just has, you know, Central Park right in the middle. And then apart from that, it's so absolute, you're either in the park or you're not. Whereas London, it's kind of all these like joining up and these corridors that are created by having something like a Grovester that links Hyde Park with, you know, all of the other green spaces in the West End. But I suppose that I can imagine one of the biggest challenges is starting this in the context of now, you know, we've just had a you know, we're in a pandemic how how has the path of this development changed for you considering what's been going on globally we were always committed to kind of taking a community first approach with this so we kind of wanted to see what the way forward should look like by by speaking to other people really um you know one thing that has really struck us i guess is the level of ambition that exists within the community and within the people we've spoken to more broadly you know, people really want to see what can be done. Can, you know, can we deliver something truly exceptional? Can we create something that genuinely enhances their lives and bring something, you know, really worthwhile um, into being? You know, one of the big changes we have had, as you say, is that, you know, we wanted to deliver a community-first approach. We wanted to do loads of, of engagement. We wanted to bring people into the process. And, of course, you know, the world changed very, very quickly and we weren't able to do that engagement in the way that we'd thought. We'd planned to create this like engagement hub in the square with a terrace that could be the base for all our workshops and exhibitions and just be, you know, kind of a beacon to enable everybody in the area to come and find out what was going on and get involved and give us their view. But I also suppose it's so hard because you had all these 
this like sense of place that you were obviously trying to create becomes so much harder. But the what probably becomes all the more heightened or, or becomes a much more sharp focus is the need for this sort of space. And you've kind of got to like reconcile the two. Yeah, you know, what we wanted to talk about was what something that more and more people wanted to talk about. And, and you know, we were able with, you know, with Catherine and Maker's help to have this like really rich conversation about, about you know, what, what should we do with a space like this? And I mean, you know, this thing about consultation and talking about changes is so important right now. Um, you know, previous episodes of this podcast, we discussed changes to uh, roads and cycle networks, low traffic neighbourhoods, these things which are kind of provoking all kinds of heated debates across London right now. But um, w- w- you know, Grosvenor is different from other players in the city. I mean, this is, we're talking about an organisation led by the Duke of Westminster. It's one of the largest and most historic London landowning companies. So obviously you've got a different starting point and perhaps different opportunities to make a difference when it comes to this wide engagement. How did you come to that idea that you could, and Grosvenor Square could be this moment for creating a new approach for participation of the public? So we have a um, we have a community charter um, called Positive Space that we well, we formally launched early this year, but has kind of been in the offing for some time. And you know the aim of that is is to develop a more constructive and honest and positive conversation between everyone who is who is impacted by change and impacted by development. It's based around four key principles um, where we commit to to listen first and to be open about what it is that we're seeking to achieve. Um, and to make it easy for people to take part in the conversation and ultimately to be accountable to communities that are that our actions have an impact upon. So, you know, when you apply those principles to Grosvenor Square, it's pretty obvious that, you know, as a public space, it's not really appropriate for us as a private company to just decide what the future should look like. We're acutely aware that actually we're going to get a much better solution if we open this out and, and learn from the collective experience available. Uh, Catherine, You've been at the forefront of this. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about how you made Grosvenor's desire to boost participation a reality. Up until, like, before the pandemic, our entire approach was predicated on being present somewhere um, and thinking about how you initiate conversations that are that get to the, the kind of real essence of what people want from a space beyond it being about just picking choices or talking about the minutiae of dog poo and litter bins, which is probably the stereotype of what people imagine these conversations might be like. So we've had to really turn around how this might be delivered and think, well, how do we have a conversation about public space that is genuinely public? And so what's been interesting about having to shift this around is say, well, okay, we can reach those people digitally um, to a certain degree, but also we can reach a much broader audience and talk to people who are about their own spaces and how that learning might apply to Grosvenor Square, but also talk about Grosvenor Square and think about how the learning for that, for Grosvenor Square can apply to other spaces. So it's really allowed us to kind of open up that conversation. I've had the pleasure of listening to a few of these big conversations. They're on YouTube uh, and they were an amazing primer on what public green spaces are in the 21st century. There are voices from all over the world talking uh, and the quality of the conversation is fascinating. I mean, do you think... Like a lot of people really groan when you say it's a Zoom event. How do you see Zoom moving forward in that world of public conversations? Because are we going to temper it? Are we going to have like semi-physical, semi-digital 
type conversations or is it just going to be zoom all the way for years i mean and is that a problem there's you know now people are probably like zoom fatigued i think we were you know we very quickly had to turn around and came out with this public program of events and we've had really good participation at them and as you say really good quality speakers um, and we learned a lot about how to facilitate those types of things online. Um, so there's probably, if you watch them as a series, there's going to be an improvement in how they were delivered. But I think, no, you know, it's never going to be as binary as that, saying, well, everything's going to be online now or everything, you know, once the pandemic is over, we'll all suddenly be out again. You know, one of the things that I've really valued about it is thinking I can actually participate in things in a way that I haven't been able to because I've got little kids, so I'm not always out of an evening, but I can participate in stuff because I'm at home or I can watch it back again or I can have it on in the background like I might have the radio on. So there's definitely something really interesting about how that allows a broader way of accessing we really thought about well how do we do those in some way that are personable like who we are as a business and one of the things that you know I think Grosvenor wanted us to bring to the project was that sense of quality of experience but personal experience so we um you know we ended up sending really beautiful print packs in advance of our of all of these kind of local conversation workshops where people had an activity to do before. So they came a bit prepared. They had like, you know, photo cards or things that would just give you a sense of, okay, this feels special. We live in a city that has witnessed massive, major change in recent decades. You know, we've seen residential towers everywhere, huge landmarks like the Shard and the walkie-talkie created in the centre. Uh, but we've also had some some things like the opening up of the Olympic Park that we've been hearing about, this amazing place. And also you know, this heritage-led tech zone between what had previously been these inaccessible warehouses behind King's Cross. Um, but then again, even more recently, uh, we've had this thing, social distancing. We have to distance to each other. So we've seen temporary dining areas spring up in what had otherwise been these streets clogged full of traffic. But despite all of this attention on public space, many people, including those who create them, often still see it as a functional thing, defining green, blue and paved areas for what they do rather than what they are. This perception seems to be shifting significantly as a result of COVID-19, during which some of us had limited access to open green space just when we needed it most. This exposed an inequality of access previously hidden to some. So taking this idea about functional kind of space, I mean, look, Grosvenor Square, I think most of us know it was it was created as part of a property investment vision uh, 300 years ago. Uh, yeah, but now it finds itself as a crossroads. So perhaps, Ed, you could give us a bit of a history lesson now. Um, tell us what are those little bits and nuggets of history and fascinating insights that you've learned along the way that have proved really useful when it comes to reimagining it and going beyond it as just being a functional place. The original ambition of the, of its Georgian creators, you know, they they sought to create something spectacular. It was a centerpiece for their for their new neighbourhood, Mayfair. The original design was was called a wilderness work, and um, it, the intention was to create uh, a piece of countryside in the city, which is quite funny because it's really common language now. In fact, I think we've used it a couple of times already today. But at the time, that was totally groundbreaking. You know, we've got a document that that indicates that there were more species of plants in Grosvenor Square than all the other London squares combined at the time, which is just amazing. Like it was originally, you know, laid out basically for the for the very popular Georgian activity of strolling. 
but you know since then you know it's kind of its formation has changed but it's always kind of been private it's been like this garden for the for the literally for the front doors on the square alone but i guess things totally changed in the war uh it was really disfigured during the war a lot of the trees were felled um it was actually the site for a barrage balloon launch and kind of amazingly kind of following the war the the grover family gave the square over to be publicly accessible and you know i guess at this point it's it's use and its purpose sort of changes forever it's no longer kind of fenced off from the public but becomes for everyone and you know since then it's seen you know it was the site of massive anti-vietnam war protests in the 70s and more recently it includes the the 9-11 memorial garden and then finally i kind of alluded to it already but you know there's this whole american layer of the square which is kind of so important it's a really it's a place of really important symbolism for the kind of anglo-american relationship um, the American presence in the square goes back hundreds of years, actually, but really, I guess, since the war. And, you know, the war, it was kind of, it was known as Little America and was the base for, for, for the US war effort in, in the UK. And even though the embassy has now departed for Nine Elms, you know, it's still a really important place for, for Americans in, in Britain. And just to recap on that, that is fascinating. So if you think about it, what you're saying is innovative place, publicly significant with an element of internationalism. And, you know, not, not everyone listening is going to be an architect or designer, but that is like a dream brief. In terms of that now, so considering its history, considering everything it means to so many different people in a very local level, in a very international level, what sort of, what are the different responses and the different voices that you're, you're hearing at the moment and you're gathering and collecting to get a good understanding of its contemporary value and its contemporary meaning to people? You know, there are competing priorities. There are things that don't naturally sit alongside each other. But, you know, it's, it's quite a big space. And if it's done carefully and done respectfully, I think we can try and balance some of these things. But of course, you can't make the space too crowded. We collected feedback under five engagement themes. And these were big kind of high level topics that we were trying to be have a very expansive conversation about. Um, and we were able to, from that, draw out these community priorities under each of those topics. You know, things like making sure it was a green oasis and, and that it wasn't an event space. You know, the commercialisation of public spaces in London is, you know, a really hot topic. And it's very clear that, you know, local people were not keen to see Grosvenor Square go the same way. Um, and make sure that we're reflecting the heritage, but creating, you know, we talked about it earlier as well, that sense of escape, that sense of space within the garden that means that you feel that you're, you know, away from the hustle and bustle. And yeah, and there were some really surprising elements as well. It's amazing. I think almost every single conversation we had had a, a, a thick strain running through it about water. Water was so important to people. Um, you know, being able to hear it, being able to, you know, be near it, the calming influence it has, um, but also about using it sustainably and making sure that, you know, it's done in a way that means we're not, you know, rinsing our resources. I think it's one of the hardest things to get people to articulate space because it's so implicit. You, you know, if you move around the city uh, as an individual and it, it it's sort of, you know, the, the tube is there, the pavement's there, the street is there. It's all very normal. And I think to, to be someone who could, uh, who could move around the space in a comfortable way, you have to kind of put that to the back of your head. It's just like the backdrop to your daily activities. So then to be able to get people to bring it to the foreground and actually use these descriptive words to talk about something that is almost actually quite intangible is, is a skill in itself. Yes. No, well... I mean, I'm saying yes, but also thank you. What's <laughs> um, <laughs> wrong with it? <laughs> I think that, you know, the thing is that it is very, very easy to jump into the 
it's about pavements and a wider gate and a level surface and mowing lawns and litter bins and all of the things that actually, yeah, we want it to be there, but these aren't the things that make our hearts beat faster or, you know, bring joy. And it is about how do we have those conversations? And then, you know, we've reached a hugely kind of wide-ranging group of people But, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't more to be done. You know, I think there's been something really interesting that's been unveiled through our heightened experience and conversation about, you know, open spaces in that inequality of access to them. So if you're a young person, if you're a person of colour, like, are you accessing these spaces in the same way that people with huge privilege are accessing them? We all, when we all described our childhood, none of us talked about permission permission was completely implied that we had access to space um so what are we doing that's early enough on in the process that is about kind of building in that permission without it being a a kind of you have permission to use Grosvenor Square but that you know the the thing that doesn't need to be articulated because people realize that public includes them I think it's when you imagine the the gestation period of any project you don't right at the beginning need to be talking about the detail it's also not how designers work is it they don't start with the detail always they start with kind of the ambition and the concept and the and the vision and I think you know from an engagement perspective if you aren't if you're not part of that conversation then it's really hard to build any sense of ownership or agency over the changes that happen so you know I i I'm totally on for the conversations about the details, but I just think they do, not every conversation has to be about that. That's amazing. And like you said, for you guys, you don't have to think of the details yet, and the designers don't either. So speaking of designers, Ed, what has working with Tonkin and Lou been like, and what do you like particularly about what they've come up with so far? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's literally this stuff. It's the it's the it's what they've managed to deliver in terms of bringing what people have told us throughout the engagement process. And like stitching it so cleverly through the design. I mean, they um, you know, say so talking news like ethos is they're all about design and style inspired by nature and collective storytelling. And they've just been such a great partner to work with on this project. There's spaces for nature, there's open spaces and intimate ones, but without kind of overcrowding the space, it's kind of elegantly simple but you know i know the amount of like intense thinking that's gone in before it yeah you can actually go and have a look at it online it's um our latest kind of developing design ideas is online at uh grovenersquare.org yeah we've had lucky enough to have had a look through it and it is absolutely stunningly beautiful architectural proposal and it's also you know to get that it's a it, it requires good work between client architect and also the people who are doing the engagement so it's a rare thing to see I don't know, for me, it's kind of a bit like like the Georgian Square before it. It it feels really of its time. It's addressing the issues that are important for our generation. Um, you know, it speaks directly to the climate crisis and how to bring more nature and more biodiversity onto the site, but also making sure that the human experience is is right at the forefront. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there were some really lovely um, community priorities, actually, to bounce off of to, for Tonkin Lu in order to be able to inspire them. So we've got things like stepping into nature, which is such a beautiful synergy between the way that Tonkin Lu work as a practice and in the collective desire from the public through the work that we've done so feeling enclosed by by nature planting to be immersed in kind of thinking about retaining an open space but somehow articulating it in a way that feels much stronger 
being able to walk through something so walkways enclosed by nature like all of these lovely priorities which are you know provide really nice inspiration how do you know if you're doing it right when it comes to being able to address you know environmental and social well-being value and how do you know these issues are very very prevalent in what we've all discussed but how do you when it comes to actually doing that through the consultation through the designers bringing it all together in the finished finished article essentially yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not easy. And, you know, I guess we were, from the beginning, we were really keen to make sure that we that we knew that our investment is is going to achieve our ambitions. Um, so on the environmental side, we're working with the with a team of scientists from um, the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, um, and they're carrying out a research project establishing the natural capital of Grosvenor Square. So this looks at kind of all elements of the ecosystem of the square, from like carbon sequestration to pollution absorption, biodiversity, hydrology, you know, the list goes on and, you know, we'll monitor all these factors over the course of the project. On the on the social side, again, we're working with um, Symmetrica Jacobs and, and the LSE. Um, so they've kind of identified a really long list of like really important social indicators of well-being metrics that we want to that we want to measure. We want to measure them you know, kind of before and after um, and understand what, you know, what the difference in those might be and what impact this project could have had on those. There's this whole kind of link about, yes, you can identify what a metric is, but how do you know how important it is? So it's actually kind of links back to the engagement program and actually understanding what people value and making sure you're measuring that and making sure you're seeking to deliver that. But I keep thinking about the point that you made earlier, Merlin, around like we had these feral childhoods and then are somehow looking for something more formal. And actually, you know, I wonder whether really that the whole pioneering first spirit of Grosvenor Square to be this wilderness work, that it's actually that I feel like it just resonates so much with what people are talking about. It's kind of, can we deliver something that has that kind of wild and natural feel, accepting, you know, even when I described being in the forest um, near me, you can sometimes hear cars, but it doesn't take away from the benefit of that feeling of being so immersed in nature. Our built environment and public urban spaces are probably under more scrutiny now than ever before. The COVID-19 pandemic has spontaneously showed us how important green spaces are, while also revealing the stark inequalities which exist in terms of who can access and benefit from them. Coupled with the pandemic, there is also a climate crisis, which shows no sign of going away without major changes to the way we live and shape the environment around us. And a new acceptance of the underlying injustices around race, class and gender structurally embedded in our societies. Everyone agrees the way forward is a more inclusive, healthy and sustainable city, but there is no single solution to achieve this. And there is also a risk that we end up asking too much of our urban spaces generally when it comes to meeting these challenges, knowing the built environment has limited power to influence those bigger economic and social factors at play in society. Ed, um, what lessons have you learned from this, this journey that you think that could be applicable to all London urban spaces? I mean, for me, it's really all been about how you bring people into the decision making around their local public space. You know, it, it matters most to them. So get them involved early and deeply. Um, and it means you're going to end up with a much better outcome. You know, this is relevant, actually, not just to public space, but to kind of the whole built environment industry. And, you know, we all kind of need to start doing much better. The model of working out what you want to do 
and then getting on and trying to sell it to the community has totally had its day. Things need to be developed in partnership with the stakeholders who it affects. Like I, I cannot emphasize enough like how much better our design is now because we managed to include other voices in the design process right from the beginning. You know, and we can be confident that what we've got now meets the ambitions and the desires of local people and of Londoners. And then Catherine, in terms of things like the inequality of access to space and our emotional relationship with being outdoors um, and how that then ties in with how you get people engaged and educated in the process, what's your kind of comment in response to that, to what Ed just said? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few things. One is, you know, I've really enjoyed how much all the other, you know, not just the public, but how the designers and how the client team have really enjoyed this process as well. Um, you know, I think it's it's slightly different for me because we did, you know, this is the type of work that we deliver or like our mission is all around kind of like genuine engagement. So I think, you know, it's it's so wonderful to hear people be both kind of um, surprised and delighted about how enjoyable it can be. But I think, you know, wouldn't it be great if we can strip the stress away from thinking we've got to work out what we want to do and then figure out how we're going to tell people about it. Uh, what if we could just talk about our ambitions and we could share those ambitions and then do this thing together? But then, you know, I think there's something around education and engagement that has been more challenging to do in this time around are we reaching enough of a diverse group of people? What it highlights is that actually who is the expert on the city? And because, you know, it, the, the, the person who is trained to be an expert on the city can portray it and can communicate it in a way that's recognised within a professional expert environment. But actually, if we're saying that, I think, Ed, what you've been saying throughout the whole thing is that everyone is an expert on their local place. But how do you translate that, that particular expertise that's very bit rough, ready, a bit every day, isn't necessarily really packaged together in these neat articulate um, sound bites. And actually, I suppose that's why, Catherine, you're saying that you can translate different forms of expertise into a way that, that can that, that can then be passed on to be built into a design process. Yeah, I mean, I would say that is fundamentally my job. So we've had over like 4,400 pieces of feedback on this um, project so far. And some of those pieces of feedback might be the equivalent of a flag uh, someone writing on a flag and saying I want this here it could be a photograph that's annotated with a I like this and it could be a really long email it could be an online survey you know it isn't about setting up a process that makes it easy for me it's about saying okay I need to be and my team needs to be able to work out how we create some parity and get some um, priorities out of this data but actually the core mission has got to be let's get as much data and insight and knowledge as we can and make sure that we allow for the Merlins and we allow for the Eds and the Zoes and that you know and everybody to be able to participate in this. So I think it's clear that high quality urban spaces which are truly welcoming and accessible are an essential part of any healthy and vibrant city and I think we can probably confidently all say that it's being acknowledged by all or most sectors of society, um, particularly as we face more and more societal challenges that we've, we've touched upon throughout this podcast. We're lucky in London having a lot of green areas already at our fingertips, but there are still instances where existing spots need to be renewed or parks created altogether from scratch. 
In many ways, what we really need is lots of outstanding small parks, which will fill a range of roles while being highly accessible to everyone. So, Ed, for you, if we were to be real, you know, blue sky thinking and really futuristic about this, what kind of place do you imagine Grosvenor Square to be in 10 years' time in the minds of Londoners? I want it to be something that will really raise the bar. I want it to change perceptions of what urban green space can be and be, you know, not just a London example, potentially even a global example of, of what good looks like. And then, Catherine, COVID 19's obviously come along. Can you see that having a radical influence and change on the way these discussions happen across London? Something like the Olympic Park was created, obviously, in a completely different world from what we have now, but there'll be more projects like yours, other people trying to do similar things. You know, in terms of the principles that people want, I think, yes, there's a certain um, truth in people tapping into more of the emotional value that they see in these spaces and therefore the conversation has definitely been shifted out so that we can have more ambitious conversations that are about kind of tapping into people's imaginations for what they what they want and what they need because I think people are more acutely aware of that I would hope that the pendulum will swing back a little bit you know we're on this project we will be going out on the grounds for a month-long exhibition that is sometimes staffed sometimes unstaffed it's outdoors and um, but to give people an opportunity to also come and talk to us in person like if they want to in a socially distanced way so I think you know that's it's about that combination of methodologies and mechanisms you know I think it's been really interesting for us as an organization that we've been forced into rethinking how we deliver some things. Having listened to this show, why is it so important that listeners should get involved in this consultation and share their thoughts, this consultation that's going live this week in a few days? Because this is a piece of public space um, and we've been on this amazing journey where people have been incredibly generous to contribute their ideas and we don't want that to stop. Now things are getting much more real. We want to continue these incredible conversations and keep hearing from people okay so uh Catherine and ed if if i were to want to go down at the moment get involved you know throw my hat into the ring with my opinion about all of this if i wasn't going to send a wax sealed letter how would i be getting involved what can i do so we currently have an open air exhibition running until the 19th of october in grosvenor square so you can go and view it at your leisure um, all of that information is also online at www.grovenessquare.org. Um, there's an audio tour that goes with it, so you can view the content and hear the design team, Ed and myself, talk about it. Um, and you can fill out all the forms and have your say online. So, Merlin, you can click on some pictures if you would wish to. Um, and then definitely follow us on social media on Twitter at Grosvenor Square or on Instagram at um, Grosvenor Square, but it's SQ. And, yeah, get involved. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Selassie Satifa, 
Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher, and our producer, Ruby Maynard-Smith, and the Open City staff, Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave, and Sean Milliner. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.